quick, Ding Dongs, I just wanted to let you know before you get started with this week's episode, I had a little bit of a snafu with my mic and didn't realize until I sat down to edit that the entirety of the show had been recorded using my laptop mic. It's clean and clear audio, but it just sounds like it's coming from inside my bathtub. I hope you can get past that to enjoy what we have to say about the stand and uh, apologies for the inconvenience there. Will the wonders of technology ever cease? Who knows? Anyway, on with the show. listening to Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2 Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. Hello, everybody. The darkness has descended, and it's time to gather once again for an entertaining dive into one of the books by the living legend Stephen King. Some of you who have been following along this season have no doubt noticed a few glaring omissions, some of the heavy hitters, if you will, and I don't mean just the physical weight of these tomes themselves, which is considerable, but the books that have sold so many copies and have been adapted so many times that they've seeped deeply into the cultural fabric, and even non-fans are familiar with the stories in question. Um, Granted, this season could be blown up into an entire show focused on King and would easily be hundreds of episodes long before it started to feel strained for material. Uh, But today, I would like to fill one of the glaring gaps. And it's a big one. I'm talking, of course, about King's enormous, sprawling epic, one he once referred to as the American answer to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, The Stand. And joining me on that journey is an author who is no stranger to this book and ones like it. He's the author of eight published novels. I hope I have that number right, including The Jackpot, which was published in 2011, uh, The Immune, The Living, and most recently Daybreak, uh, which was released in 2021. Uh, so welcome to the show, David. Allison, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And I was showing you before we started my gigantic hardcover uh, copy of The Stand, which is my my only um, physical copy right now. But I'm um, so, yeah, I've been a big fan of this book since I first read it almost 30 years ago. Oh, uh, yeah. And I just have to let you know, too. I'm so glad to have you here as well. I've been a big just admirer of yours. So I met you through Chuck Wendig. Um, I, met, I met so many great people through Chuck Wendig. And your wisdom and your very logic-guided thoughts on COVID and, and the pandemic and everything throughout 2020, it's been a nice thing to see, you know, amid sort of the the craziness. It was great to get to know you as well through this. So, I mean, at least there were some good that came out of um, all of that nightmare. <laughs> and, you know, so it's appropriate. I think that we're now talking about a book about a pandemic. Um, but I also need to let the readers know, because I just found this so amusing. And I mentioned it the other day on social media. I said, David is the fourth lawyer slash author I've had as a guest on this show. And you're not likely to right. be the last. 
And I wasn't sure if this said more about me and the types of friends that I tend to attract or about the profession of law itself, because my friend, Terry Lynn Coop, she was on the show recently. We were talking about Night Shift. Uh, she's also a lawyer or formerly practicing. She's not right. a teacher. And I asked her also, you know, what do you think draws lawyers to writing fiction? Uh, and she said, because they're bright, they're literate, and most of all, they're bored. <laughs> So I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, because you are, I mean, I see this a lot. So I think, well, Terry is right about all of those things. And I would agree with that. I don't think it's random that you see so much crossover from uh, lawyers, practicing lawyers and, and writers of fiction. And I think one of the big reasons for that is that part of being a lawyer is learning how to tell a story. And I think this applies, especially on the litigation side of things. If you're trying cases... Um, whether you're going to be in front of a judge or whether you're going to be in front of a jury or like what I practice, um, I prosecute disciplinary cases against healthcare professionals. I try my cases before an administrative board made up of um, practicing nurses and citizen members. And in the end, you're trying to draw together a lot of, you know, threads of information and then trying to, you know, tie them together into a narrative that will make sense for whoever is making the decision on your case, whether it's a jury, whether it's a judge whether it's some sort of administrative uh, body like, like, like any board that I practice in front of. So I think there is some definite um, overlap in terms of the skills that are required to do each successfully. Now, you know, other people can decide how good or bad I am at either of those things. Um, but I do think it's not, it's not a coincidence because there is a lot of storytelling in lawyering. And, you know, some of the best lawyers are the ones that can tell a simple story to the jury whether they're prosecuting, you know, a high profile murder case, all the way down to something that on the surface might be boring, like two companies arguing about a contract dispute, you know, and if, if you can entertain the jury and or entertain the judge and keep them interested, and tell a story using the facts that are before you, then, you know, you're probably going to be, you know, successful. Um, so I think that's why um, you see so many uh, lawyers praying at the altar of John Grisham, who was the, you know, sort of, I'm sure there were others before him, but he's sort of the, the, godfather. Yeah, the godfather of lawyers who became writers, you know, who, who seemed to, you know, cross over from, from one to the, I just read an interview today with him actually about, um, you know, his transition from being a lawyer. And even he said in the interview, he said he didn't think he was a very good lawyer, but I'm sure he, if he told stories or he practiced law the way he tells stories, then I'm sure he probably did a pretty good job. Um, you know, before he was yeah. able to turn over to, you know, writing fiction full time. That's such a good point. I, you know, in speaking to, I had uh, Brett from the prosecutors on a previous episode this season as well. Um, we talked about The Mist and I listened to his show all the time and and both he and his co-hosts who are both prosecutors, um, they uh, always mention how it often is about who has the best story. It isn't even always about the facts per se, exactly. um, which is why, you know, you look at uh, like the OJ Simpson trial, I think is the shining beacon of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they had the prosecution had the DNA, they had, you know, so the motive, they had so many things. And then at the end of the day, OJ wins. And ultimately, because Johnny Cochran was like the master yeah. storyteller yeah. of, I mean, he made you believe or the jury, I should say. I didn't necessarily right. believe myself, but I will say I can see how he got off. I mean, I really can. So it, it's it really is about that. And I love how you 
you mentioned that about building the story and also lawyers in particular through their education know how to do that in a very orderly and succinct way because you have to be so organized, I imagine, and all the memorization you have to do, all of the careful arranging you have to do. It is not a job for anybody who approaches something like a shotgun. And not only are you trying to tell a story, the best story you can, you're dealing with people whose attention spans, you know, may be limited in some way. You know, maybe they've got something else on their mind. Maybe, you know, they're worried about a sick child or a sick spouse. I mean, you just never know what's going on. So you're really trying to do your best to grab their attention and hold it for as long as you can to get across the facts that, you know, support your case, whether you're representing a defendant, a criminal defendant, um, a software company, you know, whoever, you know, you're really trying to tell that story in as efficient a way as possible. And, you know, you know, both of us being writers, we know that we're trying to minimize excess verbiage. You know, we're trying to tell the story in the words that, that you need to use, but no more than that. I think Elmore Leonard was kind of the master of that. I think he even said, just cut out all the unnecessary yeah. bits, <laughs> he did, like, he did. which is just really funny until you get into writing. That's right. uh, a piece of advice that feels a little odd. And then once you start learning how to edit that, that really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but I really want to talk about you a little more in particular because you expressed immediate interest in talking about the stand when I put out the call for guests interested in appearing this season. And, you know, I did a little digging on your bibliography. Mm. And and of course, I noticed that right off the bat, apocalyptic fiction, just, you know, that's the that is your bread and butter. And so what is your history of discovery with the stand? And has that had an influence on your own work? Would you say that was the pivotal book for you or or how did that come about? Yeah, so I I remember I, I think the stand was probably the first apocalyptic novel that I read. I remember re- watching some movies. I was always kind of drawn to that kind of storytelling as a kid. Like I remember, I don't know if you remember the movie and I think you're, you're about my age. You might be a little bit younger than me. There was a movie called night of the comet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I remember watching mm-hmm. that when I was maybe 12 or I mean, maybe I was even younger than that. And I was just, I, I don't know how good a movie it is. Like if I went back and watched it 35 years later, it would still be that good. But I remember that with thinking, Oh, this, you know, end of the world story is kind of cool. And I remember being in the bookstore and I might've been winter. I was home from college for Christmas in 1993. And uh, I saw it on the, on the bookshelf and I had not really read much Stephen King by then. In fact, I think this was the first book I read from start to finish of his. And, you know, I read the back and I was like, Oh, this sounds kind of interesting. So you wait, 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 you started with this one. Yes. This was your, yeah. I think as, as far as I remember, wow. I don't remember re- reading any of his other books before that. I, I really think this that's was amazing. The first. Um, that's great. And so I took it home and, you know, started reading it. And, you know, immediately you're drawn into the story, you know, from the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the soldier who escapes from the base in the prologue and, yes. you know, he's running with his wife and his, you know, little baby daughter. And then it switches over to, you meet Stu and the other characters in Texas and you're just sucked into it immediately. And I think one of the things about the book is it's relate- relatability. You know, the characters just seem and again, like I said, this is the first time I've read Stephen King, and it is one of his gifts, is making his character seem very, very real and, and someone you can connect with. And I, I had not really written a ton of fiction by then. I mean, I'd written some short stories as a kid, um, but I think that one was the one that definitely planted the seed that someday I'd want to write something, you know, big, sprawling, like, like The Stand is, you know, multiple points of view, things going on all yeah. over the place. And, and hoping I could get to a point someday that I could tell a story like that and, and keep 
all those plates spinning in the air at the same time, which, you know, obviously something he's really good at. Honestly, and you guys who both of you, all of you who are listening and you, David and Stephen King, those of you who can do that, just for me coming as a writer, I tend to tell kind of streamlined, you know, I might, I do have alternating points of view, mm. but it, it's usually more, not more than two or three. And they're also well under a hundred thousand words, usually topping out about 90 mm. at the top end. So, uh, so people who could tell these epic stories with this huge cast of characters and keep it all together. I mean, bravo. Uh, that is not easy to do. I can say that it is a particular gift. So hands down, I'm just so glad because I feel like you can come at this both as a storyteller and, you know, a fan of the story. So, um, and it really helps to convey to anybody listening who hasn't done a lot of writing, how hard this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and King himself ran into some speed bumps and we'll talk about that yeah, yeah. Uh, as we go along. Um, but, uh, first I just want to cover a few brass tacks, which is, which is what I usually do with these stories. I will say due to the sheer length of this book, this episode is going to be a little different. Um, there is not going to be, uh, too much blow by blow in terms of plot, um, because that would take forever. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, these episodes are kind of geared toward people that have maybe already read the story and they have a passing familiarity with it. So we're good with spoilers. We can just spill all. And we're going to just refer to plot and character and broad strokes as necessary with the discussion that we we have here. Basically, I want to talk about the relevance of this book in almost every era it's existed mm-hmm. in uh, since its initial publication in 1978. So the 1978 version of the book exists in a much shorter form, yep. uh, because the publisher at the time could not justify the financial side of publishing such a huge book with still a pretty relatively uh, newer author. King was selling really well at that time, but he hadn't really handed them over a doorstop yet and said, hey, let's make this happen. And we're talking, what, about a 1, thousand, 1150 some pages was the final book. And so the publisher runs the numbers as they do in publishing companies and, you know, having... I mean, we're both, we've both self-published, correct, uh, as well. Have you ever self-published a book? Yeah. Okay. So even you, when you're looking at print costs and you're going, oh, damn, okay, it's going to cost me, okay, $20 to print this and then I'm going to have to mark it up. It wasn't going to work. So the publisher's like, okay, cut this thing. And so King re- extracts about 400 pages and they release that version. And then, of course, King hangs on to everything. And, you know, over time, he becomes an actual household name in horror. And by 1990, it seemed the perfect time for him to revamp the book, put back in that old material, you know, shine it up a little more and release the version that you held up, David, and yep. um, and that I have as well. The un- complete and uncut edition was released in 1990. And he not only added back in that 400 pages, but he also rearranged the order of the chapters he moved the plot forward a full decade and added some additional cultural references to, mm-hmm. he essentially rewrote the book. I mean, let's yep. face it, um, which is something staggering to think about because this is a lot of material. I have rewritten like my book, The Other Mrs. Miller is kind of famously, I tell people like, yes, the first draft doesn't exist anymore because I literally deleted it and rewrote it. 
but we're talking 90,000 words, you know, we're talking. That's still bold. You know, a couple hundred, a few hundred pages versus 800 to 1100. Yeah. The thought of doing that kind of makes me sick, but it is considered by most, I would say the definitive version. It's been read the most. That's the one that's been adapted. So the miniseries from 1994 uh, was adapted from the complete version, as was the recent miniseries on Paramount+. Plus. And I believe he wrote the screenplay for the 1994 um, miniseries. He did. He did. Um, and... And he worked with uh, Mick Garris, who is one of his gotcha. longtime collaborators to direct that. And it remains to this day King's longest work, uh, which mm. is c- impressive considering Under the Dome, I think, was probably uh, close to that. Um, yeah. Massive, massive tomes. Um, so I wanted to ask, have you read the 1978 version? I, I, I have not. And it's, I was just thinking about this. I was at a beach house um, some years ago. And I found a copy of the original 1978 version, and I had already read the the newest one, so I knew that this was the full version, and that there was a uh, a shorter, you know, original version. And um, I I, de- I debated borrowing it from the beach house so I would have a complete set of the original stand and the new one, but my uh, my uh, my my guilt, you know, came up and stopped me from from permanently borrowing that copy. So I've never read I've never read that one. But I did have my hands on it one time and I was like, oh, I should take it. But I didn't. I'm very, very intrigued. I haven't read it either myself because, um, you know, I came to this book. I was in the sixth grade when it came out thereabouts. And yeah. uh, I I picked it up. I was already reading King by that point. And I, mm-hmm. when I saw that thing, I knew I had to have it. And so uh, I carried around that book to all my sixth grade, like, classes like a badge of pride like my friends were horrified my my teachers were impressed which was kind of the defining brand throughout most of my academic career (laughs) but um but that's the one that stuck with me so and as you know I think we mentioned off recording like I've gone through about four of those paperbacks because they don't hold up I mean a book that thick yeah the spine there's yeah. not enough spine glue in the world to hold that thing together right. um right. it yeah. just you know it just doesn't survive so um i've always meant to go back to the 1978 version but when i've told people that i'm doing this episode everybody has a different opinion people who have read both there is a real mm. debate out there i don't know where i fall on it just cuz i haven't read both so i can't offer an opinion yeah. um but even just on Twitter earlier today, someone said the 1978 version, sometimes King needs an editor. And then I was talking right. to Terry Lynn Coop uh, the, last night, in fact, because she was up here visiting um, my place last night. And we were talking about this and she said, you know, I really like I've read both. I really like what King added back in. It just made the story fuller. So for me, I cannot imagine reading a version of The Stand that had less of what's in it. Yeah. It's like, if, if this is your favorite book, like it, it's one of probably my two or three favorite books of all time, you know, to, to go to sit back and think, you know what this book needs more of less story. <laughs> yeah. Like I, that, I mean, and, I, and I, not to take anything away from someone who might think the 78 version is superior, but only having read this one and having loved it and having it, having had the impact on me that it's had. Um, it, I think it's, you know, is it perfect? Like n- nothing no, is perfect, no. but it's, it's, I, I adore it from cover to cover. The only quibble that I've had about this book, it was just, it had a little for me about that watching Return of the King, like Lord of the Rings, the third mm. Lord of the Rings film and just seeing it 
fade to white and bring us another ending. It kind of had a multiple yeah. ending thing going on that, you know, so by the time like uh, Stu is trying to get back to uh, Boulder from the New Vegas like battle and it took that took forever. But honestly, I can't fault it too much for that because it's such a massive story. And I feel like when you grow a story that big, it's it does more of a disservice to the reader to not give as much emotional payoff as you can. If you shortchange right. even a little bit to someone who's invested so much time, it's worse, I think, yeah. than if you just kind of like shortcut. And then it feels like it's being shortcut. So I can't uh, I can't fault it for that. And maybe one day I'll read the 78 version, but it's going to feel very different because, um, you know, he has so many characters and apparently he, so many of the smaller elements to it, like, when all the people have died off that are going to die off from this virus and you have the survivors that are immune, the whole section mm-hmm. of the book where people, you know, commit suicide because they can't stand the idea of surviving in this world without their loved ones. Um, and he does all these individual little kind of vignettes of these people doing that. Just those little moments that add to the emotional impact. Yeah. It makes it very human. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and looking at, you know, today, uh, and, you know, we'll talk a little more about its relevance to what we've been dealing with, uh, with this pandemic, but it sort of reminded me of how, you know, it's, we focus on the core death number of COVID in the United States, you know, when it hit 1 million or whatever, just recently yeah. here, but it totally disregards all the other deaths that happened as a result of the pandemic, not just directly from COVID. So when you add those numbers in, the number inflates quite a bit. And then, you know, you think those people count too. They, sh- you know, we have yeah, yeah. to recognize that statistic. And so to me, that was like King even making that acknowledgement in his book that he wrote a very long time ago. Um, right. So just those little moments. But Stephen King in his book, Dance Macabre, uh, talking about his inspirations for this book. And he's talked in other places about it too. But I would say that that's the book he goes most in depth about his inspirations for this story. And so Mm -hmm. the one that I really liked is um, he talked about the Dugway sheep incident of 1968. And that was in Utah. Uh, There was a chemical spill, a chemical weapons spill from the military out there. And it killed a whole flock of sheep. Uh, The the winds blew a certain way. A bunch of sheep died. It was like kind of a big deal. The military denied a lot of their involvement in that. And then it came out later that, yes, they were involved in it. Yeah. And and so you imagine what would have happened. And I think he saw it on 60 Minutes. They talked about if the wind had blown the other way, Salt Lake City would have had a very nasty surprise. And so that got into his brain. And he was also plugging away on a fictional retelling of the Patty Hearst story, uh, which if people don't know, Mm. that's a kind of a whole other thing. But Uh, This young woman was sort of kidnapped by this um, liberation army, like this this extremist group. And according to the popular culture, she was brainwashed into participating in some of their uh, crimes and robberies and things like that. And there's been a lot of contradictions as to how cognizant or how voluntary her participation was in those events. And that's just mm-hmm. a whole other thing, but it was a big deal back in uh, the late sixties, early seventies, when King was, you know, writing this book, 
but he couldn't get it off the ground and it's never been published. He said he just couldn't find a way into that book. So he was dealing with a big disappointment. And then I guess he was listening to a lot of uh, Christian, or he wasn't listening to a lot of it. There was just like a Christian radio station out in Boulder where he was living at the time talking about apocalyptic stuff and, you know, plagues being visited on humanity and all this stuff. And mix that in with a post-apocalyptic book he was reading at the time uh, called Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. And so... Highly recommended. Oh, I have not read that. So, yes. It's very good. Oh, yeah, it's really good. Very, very good. I will put that on my list. So, he, all these things are mixing around in his brain at the time. And he had already kind of dabbled in it. Uh, and this was mentioned again on the Night Shift episode, the story Night Surf, which King wrote in, I believe it was early sixties. It was, he published it in his um, university of Maine literary journal when he was Mm. in college and it mentions captain trips for the first time. And so that's the earliest route of this story. So King was just seemingly priming himself to write a story like this. And he, he realized he wanted to do something that was kind of like Lord of the Rings where, and I mentioned that in the intro, where instead of a hobbit, you have a man from Texas named Stu. And instead of a, uh, you know, Lord Sauron, you have this faceless, you know, walking dude, uh, evil man that we know as Randall Flagg and other names. And uh, the flu is, you know, the super flu is the the ultimate enemy, right? So yeah, that's that's kind of where King's mind was when he started writing this and it took him what two some years to write this book. And then it's amazing to think about when you think about what other stuff he was probably working on at the time. So like, like, I mean, when you think of all the stuff that King came out with in the late seventies into the early eighties, that probably also took him a lot of time. How does he do that? And do you write your books concurrently like have you written, do you work on multiple books at a time no i i can't i can't i can barely do one at a time so <laughs> um i mean from what i understand about king's work habits from what i've read in his interviews and in his book um about writing called on writing is that and I, i'm guessing he's done this you know probably his entire professional life that he you know he says he writes 2000 words a day without fail yeah if you write 2000 words a day and you don't, and and I don't know how much editing he does. He may, from what I've read, he feels like he gets it pretty much on the first try because he doesn't do a lot of outlining. Yeah, you know, he's sort of like finding his way through the story. That's unbelievable um, to you me. Do, <laughs> yeah, you, you do two thousand words a day, you're going to pile up some uh, some work product. Yeah, um, you know, after a few months, and I think he said that his average book is 100, 150, 180 thousand words, which is six seven hundred pages. Um, you know, he can put, he can put that together in, in a few months. So, you know, the stand is probably, if I had to guess, probably in the 300,000 word range, maybe 350. Yeah. So, you know, with his, the way he produces content, which obviously has been very beneficial for him to be able to put that m- many books together. And in fact, I think he's, he said once that one of the reasons came up with his pen name, Richard Bachman, mm-hmm. um, which he wrote some, some of his books under that name was that he created that because his publisher would not put out more than one book a year for him under the King name. Right. But he had more books to release. I feel like uh, it's so neat to see these hugely prolific authors. And, you know, that's been a bit in the discussion lately because James Patterson has been on people's crap list lately for 
well, various reasons we yeah. won't go into, but, um, right. you know, Patterson employs a group of, of sort of, sort of ghostwriters. They're not quite ghosties because their names are on the cover in t- tiny print. Um, but casting him aside, Shannon McGuire was mentioned hugely prolific. I think she has about 66, 68 books out. And then, um, Nora Roberts though. Yeah, the boy. queen mother. She is the queen. Yeah, for sure. And she also publishes under the pseudonym JD Rob. So yep. you know, Nora has, and she wrote an apocalyptic book under under uh, well under her own name. Yeah, yeah, and and she she has about three hundred books. Um, and she yeah, has, she's incredible. She's written extensively about her writing routine as well, and I think she also shares that thing with King where it's, I write every single day. I don't take a day off and I don't quite fall under that uh, purview, obviously, or I would have a more extensive bibliography than I do. Um, But I am amazed because I've done a NaNoWriMo a bunch of times. That's Mm -hmm. the November novel writing month for those who aren't familiar. That's where the challenge is to write 50,000 words in 30 days. And that equates to around 1,667 words per day, I believe. And I've, I've completed that a few times and I can usually do it with about a week and a half to spare. So I know I can write about 2000 a day. I've written upwards of six, seven, 8,000 words a day. So Mm. I have done it, but I've paid mightily for it both like yeah for sure you know carpal tunnel how do these people have working arms i don't know yeah it's it's incredible uh so it's hard to fathom both of us sitting here as as writers who have put out a number of books and and we're not we're not exactly slouches we've been doing this for a long time so um to even think about doing that it just i want people to really appreciate the amount of actual work that goes into this because it's almost just shocking when you really think about it so i know i said i wasn't going to get into a lot of plot with this but i feel like we need to kind of get our broad strokes out of the way so that when we talk about these things that are coming people have a bit of a foundation so they know what we're talking about yeah yeah for sure um so People, obviously, it's a book about a pandemic, an extremely deadly super flu. Like this thing makes COVID look like a little uh, hay fever. Created in a lab, escapes into the population through an escape security guard, which David mentioned earlier, um, who something went down at this facility. He goes home, grabs his family, and tries to escape. And then we switch to the next chapter from the point of view of another character. We see a car wrecking in front of a gas station. That's where Stu is, correct? Correct. Um, and they find the people behind the car. We got our security guard who is breathing his last breath and the dead wife and baby in the car. And the infection just spreads very rapidly from there. And King doesn't waste any time. At this point, the military clamps down on this town and everything around it for a very long time, mm-hmm. trying to contain this thing from spreading in America. But... Meanwhile, it seems our government has had its agents deploy it in Russia and China <laughs> because this is a bioweapon, which yeah. I don't think they realize that if you're releasing it in the then Russia and China, that it's going to get around the whole world. I don't think they realized at that time how bad it truly was. And, and you know, we're sitting here now in the midst of a pandemic that isn't really over yet. And we saw how quickly COVID made its way around the planet. And so it's interesting to really sit back and look at, you know, once that thing's out, 
containing it is all but impossible, especially today. But I think even in the time this was written, lots of air travel, lots of international travel, lots of uh, trade going on back and forth. If you think about how quickly the, the 1918 influenza pandemic spread, where you know people didn't travel like they did now, and that's still whipped around the globe in almost no time. Yes. You know, I understand that there was uh, troop movements that helped move it back and forth between America and Europe, but you know, your average person wasn't flying anywhere back in 1918 no. and it's still whipped around the world what, at least twice. There were two big waves of, uh, of the 1918 flu. Go back another 500 years, the black plagues, uh, the bubonic plagues that spread yeah. through 14, 1500s and same thing. And the troop movements were tied to that spread as well as the trade routes. So, mm-hmm. and we're talking, yeah, we wiped out all most of, well, not most of Europe, but a large chunk of Europe. Big chunk, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think if the same thing had happened today, uh, well, that's even, that's too horrifying to consider. Nowadays, of course, those plagues are easily treated with antibiotics. But right. if, say, it was a similar type of bug that we didn't have treatment for, but we had the same amount of mobility as a species, that's a that's really terrifying to, sure, for sure. to consider. And of course, again, this is a very deadly flu, like a 98% death rate. And it kills people very quickly. I find it really interesting. In 2020, Stephen King gets on Twitter, I think it must have been March, I think. And because people were already coming out with the Captain Trips references. And he's like, stop, this is not Captain Trips, guys. This is way less deadly. Wear your mask, keep your distance, be smart, uh, stay calm. That was apparently too much to ask of most of the population. <laughs> right. And be smart, wear a mask. That was too much. I could totally see how uh, King wanted to distance himself a little bit, considering the havoc that resulted from Captain Trips. I think it was like, as we see society break down the way he portrays it, I mean, some of the most terrifying moments from the book are watching the military mutinies, the, yeah. the dissolving of that whole hierarchy and the an American government breaking apart and the way that's depicted. And then also the whole thing of where Stu Redman, who's probably the main character of the whole story, yeah. he discovers early on that he's immune. They know he's immune. Um, they're keeping him in this facility in Vermont and all the people that are keeping him there are dying from yeah. the disease. So he's really stuck there. He's got to break out of this place. I mean, that's how deadly this thing is. He's surrounded by dead people. And I think he gets out with another character who is also immune. But we think about all these draconian efforts that they use to stop people from getting out the military. They're shooting people. You look at what China did in early COVID where they're locking people in their homes and, you know, really restricting their movements. And that just seems very docile, humane (laughs) compared compared to what we're seeing with this. This is the story though, that people immediately started thinking of when COVID was hitting that just shows how culturally relevant this book still is. Yeah, for sure. And when we saw the empty store shelves, the grounded airline flights, the whole incompetence from the federal government where, you know, it was already happening that that whole thing, we never had competence in the government at that in that period of time. In, yeah, in, my, definitely. in our humble opinion, but to see the disorder that was happening, the disarray, the mixed messages, the sense that nobody was at the rudder. Did you find your mind wandering to the stand though? Like when all this was happening? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I did. It was almost like, and I remember going to the store you know, sometime in the first or second week of March and seeing the empty shelves, you know, it was almost like I was watching somebody else go through that. Like 
I was watching me go to the store. I wasn't the one at the store. Right. I was like, boy, that poor son of a bitch. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's nothing on the shelf. I feel bad for that guy, even though it was me. Dissociation, right? A little bit right. of that. I think there was some definite dissociation. Not only did the stand, you know, people talk about that a lot. The number one movie on Netflix for, I think, part of March and into April was Contagion. Yes. Which has got... Um, yeah, that's uh, Matt Damon. Um, Matt Damon. Yep. Oh, and his... And, um, his his uh his wife Kate Winslet Gwyneth Paltrow yeah oh Kate Winslet is the other one that's right mm-hmm. um so yeah I I definitely felt and having been the author of a book like that you know I remember uh, in early February and I'll never forget this uh, this was before we we knew a couple of weeks before we knew that we were going to be in trouble in the U S we were I was at lunch with my my family and my mom said boy she's like boy the coronavirus is going to be good for book sales huh <laughs> and I was like well. <laughs> I mean, this is before we really knew how deep, you know, how deep the doo-doo was that we were going to be in. Um, And I really didn't know if people were going to be interested in that kind of story or if it was just going to be the kind of thing that was going to be a big turnoff. I I will say that, you know, I run a lot of Facebook ads and Amazon ads for my books. And on on Facebook, people can leave comments when they see an advertisement for any, any product. And um, I started getting a lot of very nasty comments because the ads were still running as COVID was sort of, you know, starting to hit. And, you know, people were accusing me of exploiting the pandemic. And, and honestly, I started to feel like, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe I shouldn't be running ads right now. So I actually did turn them off um, for a while because it did feel, even though that wasn't my intent and the book had been out for quite a long time before that, it did start to feel like, you know, maybe this is not the type of thing that I should be writing or, you know, this is not the type of thing that I should be using as entertainment because all of us, you know, when I wrote the book, was I, first, I wrote the first draft in 2013 and, you know, we're still years away from COVID at that time. It was just a kind of a fun story to tell, you know, I loved the stand and I was like, I wanted to do my own take on it. But then after things started to, I guess, stabilize for lack of a better word in the U.S. in the summer of 2020, you know, the book started selling again. Yeah. And, you know, people still seem to be drawn to that kind of story. I guess, like I said earlier, when we were talking, one of the things that I found so appealing about the stand was, you know, you can, you can find yourself in a little bit of yourself in every one of the characters that, that he writes about, you know, Franny was a young college kid and I was in college at the time, you know, she, she finds out that she's pregnant, you know, she's sort of like, doesn't know what to do. You know, Larry has just started to hit it big with his music. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes home to see his mother and there's one little scene in the stand w- with Larry. I, I think that scene really st- stood out to me. So I guess he doesn't really realize how bad things are going to get yet. Right. You know, he knows that there's an outbreak. His mother gets sick. Um, of course, when I read it, I'm closer to Larry's age. Now I'm closer to his mother's age <laughs> sitting here today. And um, part of Larry's character is that he was sort of self-centered and selfish. And, you know, he had to grow through that, you know, as he became, you know, one of the main characters after the pandemic was over. And I remember there's a scene where he feels bad because he wonders how his mother's illness is going to affect his life. Right. And then he feels guilty about feeling like that. I'm like, well, that's a really crappy thing to realize about yourself. But then it's also a very human thing because, you know, some, you know, people can be selfish sometimes. And, and then he, he thinks it and then he immediately feels guilty about thinking it. And then, you know, then his mother, of course, gets very, very sick and he pa- she passes away from the, from the super flu. So I think it's those things like that that really connect you to this story. Maybe it was why it was so popular um, and remained popular through the pandemic because, you know, we did get a little, of course, nothing like what happened in the stand, but we did get a taste of 
you know, empty shelves and some panic. And, you know, I, I, if you look at my resting heart rate on my Apple watch, you know, it was like low sixties, December, January, February, and then March, it goes up to 70. Right. Um, even though that I didn't feel particularly panicked, but clearly it was having an impact on me. I remember feeling very similarly at the time I was working for Pepsi as a merchandiser, which meant I was going from store to store on different calls and servicing each store with the product and and building displays and the whole deal. So I was driving and going in the public a lot. And those early days of it immediately start to see the effects every day. Cause I'd have to be at a store. Usually my first call of the day would be around 6am. And normally that's well before the store opens, uh, usually a couple hours. Uh, and it's the greatest thing about you get out of your car. The only cars there are employees. Yeah walk in, you, you pull the automatic door open and you slip in and you start Mm. working. And then all of a sudden I start seeing people lined up around the buildings Mm. and I'm like, what is going on here? Uh, And then I started to realize, oh yes, the, the toilet paper, the other products, they're trying to get their head of everybody. Then I started to notice like with my own products coming in the store, I, cause I would receive the shipments uh, every day. And usually it's a whole mix of things, right? When you think of every Pepsi product, there is every flavor of Mountain Dew, every flavor of Dr. Pepper, every flavor of, you know, you think about it, there's a ton of them. When you walk down a soda aisle, normally uh, it's a whole menagerie of things. Yeah. Well, then things started arriving and it was just like Pepsi, Diet Pepsi, Mountain Dew, that's it. Yeah. And you're like, where's all the other stuff going? And, you know, and then none of the other flavors are coming in. And, um, people aren't understanding that supply chain was already kind of an issue or they were already thinking right. ahead of that. So um, suddenly the job grew very solemn and then the masking requirements began. And early on, it was kind of one of those things I'd see people in masks occasionally, but I was like, what really? We don't, you know, so it's interesting how the mentality shifted and then it got really real. And then the customers started getting angry at you for not having their things. And you would watch people run into the store when it opened and there would be one pallet of toilet paper just placed in the middle and people would be ignoring the quantity limits. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, you seeing all this stuff. And then my company, they called us and they gave us a special letter that said we were allowed to be out. And then I'm driving along a dark highway in the morning and there's these LED displays above the freeway saying, you know, uh, stick together, we'll get through this. And you just, those little things just feel like a death of a thousand cuts to your mental well being. And I remember just holding it together, I was very stoic about it. And then one day I just had a really rough day and I came home and I just broke down. I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. I always found my mind kind of returning to stories like this to see this change because it was so fast when I think about it, you know, so seeing all that happen, of course, yeah, my mind goes there and it's like, and we still didn't know about what this disease would do to people on a larger scale. You're hearing about some deaths, but it doesn't feel huge yet. And you just don't know what to believe. So I I will say that early on, and and I don't mean to get too far away from the, you know, the topic, the stand, I, I remember, I remember, and I think a lot of people probably thought the same way. I so desperately wanted it to not be bad. Right. And I think, of course, everybody was like that. And I would look for any piece of news, you know, reliable news that might indicate 
for every bad case you hear about, there were a hundred cases you didn't hear about that were mild or asymptomatic. And, you know, but I kept seeing the scientists, especially the ones on Twitter, they're like, guys, this is going to be bad. We are in big trouble here. And, and, and I, I actually followed some, I'm almost embarrassed to say some of the people I tried to get good news from because I just wanted it to be over. I wanted oh, it to be, yeah. and then, but their predictions kept not panning out and all of the science's predictions kept panning out. And at some point you just have to admit, you know, you had to come to terms yeah. with, with reality and it was going to be this bad. And here we are, you know, a million plus dead of COVID and God knows how many more um, lives damaged, ruined uh, from, you know, the byproducts of, of having to be in this situation. We always, we, as, as a species, always look to art for comfort. I mean, that's what we do, you know, whether we're binging a show, reading a book, listening to music, looking at artwork in a museum, whatever, and I'm sure I'm leaving things out. And this, this event was like one gigantic global trauma that none of us have really ever gone through together. Right. Um, we've all had trauma and, you know, there's always trauma going on around the world affecting portions of the population at one time or another. But we'd never, at least in my lifetime, and probably not until maybe not going back until World War II, experienced everything quite like everything together the way we had. And I think that's maybe why a book like The Stand or any other apocalyptic story, you know, really resonated with people just because of, you know, you've, you've read about people going through it. You know, you want to believe that you can get through it and, and keep your shit together. Hopefully, well, you know, all of us <laughs> kept it together to some extent. And on other days, we didn't keep it together. I went through so much of that same process in the beginning. And, and when I talked about this on the missed episode, it was a little bit because uh, Brett being, you know, talks about working in the prosecutor's office and, and how, um, you know, they're talking about how to help if they were going to have a grand jury in like May or June of that month or, or it was like that month in April. And they're like, certainly we'll be able to have one in June. And then, right. and then they realize, uh, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And, and, you know, and I think all of us were kind of having that very similar reaction of, you know, I, I had a big trip planned to go to London in in March of 2020 and I was going to go over to France. And then I start looking at what's happening and how Paris and Italy or getting hit hard. And I was Very like, hard, yeah. I was like, maybe I could still go to London. And then the event I was going to got canceled. And then I thought, okay, I could still go. They haven't shut us down yet, but would I be able to get back? Mm-hmm. And that's when I was like, okay, I can't go. I could go over there. I could wash, you know, stay distant and do all the things I need to do to possibly avoid COVID. Cause at that point I wasn't as worried about COVID. I was worried about the logistics of COVID. Yeah, sure. Sure. And then you start seeing all the death and then it really starts to sit in like, okay, this is a kind of a big deal. This, this is not just the flu. This is not something to trifle with. And, and yes, you know, it got real, real fast. I find it so fascinating how King managed to predict the behaviors of people uh, and the way that they link up or divide under pressure. He did this on a very small scale in a grocery store with the mist, like yeah. seeing how people divide off in, in times of crisis. And, you know, in this story, the King takes it to a more global scale, of course. And so once the virus and the ensuing chaos and suicide and everything wipe most of the people out, we essentially have two groups of people. We have mm-hmm. 
you know, one group is finding themselves being drawn toward usually in a series of dreams, which is, you know, a device, whatever. Uh, a king loves it. And I think it's convenient and it, and it's nice. It's interesting. I don't, I don't, yeah. people might quibble with it. I personally do not. Uh, this is a supernatural story as much as it is a realistic story. So he, the king weaves those elements together kind of beautifully. One group finds themselves being drawn toward one of two leaders. We have Mother Abigail, a 108-year-old woman from Hemingford Home, Nebraska, which is a huge, uh, well, not a huge, but it is a center of a few of King's stories. Uh, he's used this a lot, actually. Um, so his short stories, uh, One in the Night Shift, Last Rung on the Ladder, uh, it's adjacent to Children of the Corn. It's mentioned there and the town of Gatlin that that story takes place in is very close to Hemingford home. Oh. Uh, the novella 1922, which I've mentioned a few times on this season, it's mentioned in it. And most recently in his book, Billy Summers, like Stephen King loves Hemingford home, Nebraska. He considers it America's heartland, which I take offense to because I'm from Ohio. We consider ourselves the heartland. <laughs> so <laughs> Whatever King. And then there is the other group of people mm-hmm. that, uh, are getting contacted by Mr. Randall Flagg, who is in every way the opposite of Mother Abigail as the spiritual leader. I could do a whole episode on Flagg, honestly, and all the roles he's played throughout the Stephen King universe. He he is basically King's take on H.P. Lovecraft's shifting faceless evil entity, uh, Nyarlathotep. I can never pronounce that right. Please don't come at me, bros. Um, it's a really hard word for me to get. In fact, King seems to indicate both in The Stand and some of his other works that Flag and that entity are one and the same. It's really mm. King's like strongest homage to H.P. Lovecraft. And as I said before in other episodes, like he, of course, started reading Lovecraft when he was just a little kid. And so I think that's where a lot of his cosmic horror elements were birthed. In the stand, Flag is luring other survivors to a settlement he's created in Las Vegas. And this one, of course, has all of the totalitarian, iron-fisted, Hitler-esque imagery you could you know stuff into a single group ideology it's just the total opposite of the settlement being formed in boulder which is more like the early american ideal democracy we all Mm -hmm. we're all in this together we're gonna vote and have our town meetings and you know we're gonna just we're gonna work together and whereas flag is like he'll kill off anybody that doesn't match his ideal um but at the same time he offers a sense of stability to people he makes certain guarantees he makes people feel well it's not perfect but at least uh the trains will run on time right <laughs> you know and right. and i don't think we have to dig too far to find a contemporary example of this i mean mm. <laughs> i mean he appeals to the worst natures of people yeah. he manages to uh get them under his sway and make them love him despite being a complete monster. I mean, I, yeah. I, this sounds familiar. I know. Um, It'll come to me. It'll come to I me. I know, right? Maybe by the end of the episode, yeah, the name well, might come out. Right, it might. It might. Uh, <laughs> but you and I had an interesting discussion about this too on the, on the side when we were, before we yeah. recorded. And it really does feel like, you know, the people of not all of them, <laughs> hashtag not all uh right. in new vegas were evil 
And that's the tragedy of what Flag yeah. did. He exploited them. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, like we were talking about before the show, that, you know, a, a number of the characters that you got to see in Vegas were, like we said, were not necessarily bad people, but were looking for some sort of stability or security, having seen everything you know, in their lives completely wiped away and, you know, flag comes in as this potential savior Yes, and can promise them some, you know, copy or a facsimile of what they had known before, you know, the super flu killed everybody was really uh, alluring to them. And, you know, as I guess it's a bit of an allegory, you know, if, if we, if we really get into the weeds, you know, there can be an argument that, you know, there are certain people in this country who mourn the loss of a type of America that they think existed before, even though it never really existed. It was just that, you know, there was a lot of oppression and a lot of voices were kept silent, you know, keep quiet yeah. while white Christian America, you know, runs the show. Right. And it sometimes feels like that's a little bit of the, the statement that was being made that the people that were drawn to Vegas were mourning the loss of something that existed, whether those people had good, easy lives or very difficult lives. Flag was promising them something better. I mean, you know, that showed really in Flag's attracting like the prisoners, right? The inmates that were in the stuck in the prison and, you know, and all these other sort of like lost souls, like the people who were already lost souls, like he pulls them in because, you know, here they can be somebody here, you know, like some of them anyway, like some of the people he pulls in and influences are people that they're susceptible to it. Um, yeah. You know, in my uh, season three of the show, we'll be talking a lot about cults. Well, strictly about cults. What types of people are more susceptible to falling under the sway of certain types of leadership, um, right. toxic leadership. And you're right. They are, they are mourning something that, and they've been through so much that they, you know, whether oppressed in reality or not, um, they certainly feel like they've been cheated out of something or they've lost something. Um, and so, yeah, the call of somebody like flag is undeniably tempting. And, and I feel like it can be under the right circumstances, appealing to almost anybody. It's a very human thing that these people are experiencing this sort of tendency to just kind of want things to be easier and they don't want to have to fight so hard for it because on the free side, the the free zone and the one in mm -hmm. Boulder that's being founded under Stu and Franny and, and all these folks that are going to Boulder, what that demonstrates is what we see in real life, which is that it's a little messier and the openness and the freedom to allow for people to have their own say in the whole democratic element, as we see here, it allows for certain insidious elements to take hold that maybe they don't see coming until it's too late, which mm -hmm. in this case is the bomb, you know, cause at this point flag has already kind of been influencing a couple people on the inside um, yeah. of the free zone and the bo a bomb goes off, which is interesting. Cause in, you know, King has talked about how this bomb was really devised cause he needed to kind of, not only he needed to pare down the character count because it has just gotten too unwieldy, but also he was noticing that the characters in the free zone were starting to fall into the same behavior routines that were like the corruption, the, right. the infighting. And he hated it. And that caused a bit of writer's block. Like he walked away from the story for a bit because he didn't know how to resolve it. And then he's like, all right, I got to blow it up. 
<laughs> yeah, right, right. Literally and figuratively, exactly. Uh, which is kind of funny because that theme has popped up in so many uh, stories that revolve around like a rebellion winning its freedom. Like most famously in my mind anyway, and I know this has probably been done in a lot of other places, but I think of Robert Heinlein's uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which involves mm-hmm. a moon colony fighting for its independence from the earth and, you know, everything that they have to go through and how they form this small de facto government. And a spoiler, by the end of that, uh, they they get their freedom, but by the end of it, you start to see the cycle starting up anew. And that was kind of the whole point. It was like this whole, you know, human tendency to fall back into these old patterns. The the same theme is explored uh, in the Hunger Games. Yes. With... Um... President Coyne, who is the leader of President uh, of District 13. And Katniss sees, I mean, she almost sees a parallel between President Snow, who is, you know, her her nemesis in the story. Mm-hmm. But then she starts to see President Coyne start, start to go down that same road. The Hunger Games is 10 years old. So <laughs> close, your, close your ears if you haven't heard this part. <laughs> she ends up assassinating President Coyne um, at the end, yeah. Um, to stop the very same thing that we see that we see in the stand that King uses the bomb to, you know, number one, trim the cast of characters, but also to wake them up to the reality that they're starting to fall back into these same patterns that led them to the creation of something like, uh, you know, the 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 blue virus, Project Blue. It just seems like it's an important theme to establish because I think it's something that we see repeat history repeats itself mm. and and these behaviors repeat themselves it it just seems like the idea of the whole free and fair society is like the sisyphean quest and we prevail mm. we get that rock up that hill just enough and then it starts to roll back but once we can't seem to progress it beyond that little resting point for a moment before it starts to go back again mm. and we just keep pushing and you know, some might even say that's the ultimate goal. I've I've seen gridlock praised in some circles, usually the more libertarian ones. I'm, you know, I can't endorse that, but I feel like there are just this idea that, you know, people would rather exist in some sort of like highly imperfect stasis where most people are suffering at least a little. And then you have enough space where corruption, where like people who are kind of at the top of the pile can take advantage of the Mm -hmm. people at the bottom and like they can have theirs they don't want to follow those rules and then it just that corruption just kind of spreads like its own little virus and then we end up back doing it all over again having to fight again to get that freedom back it almost seems like the natural human tendency is to fall into the the flag side of things and we have to fight against it constantly Mm -hmm. yeah and from straight from being dictatorships to monarchies you go back all of human history, we have been fighting these systems. I think he demonstrates that through showing these two opposing sides. I think this is somewhat indicative of some of the times that we're seeing now. You know, you you see around the world that a lot of countries have started to drift back towards, you know, totalitarian or oppressive regimes. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, why? Why would people choose to, to live in that, in that sort of, you know, environment? But sometimes you have to keep in mind that if people's immediate needs are taken care of, if they can feed their families, if, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a job that they can go to and they feel safe and their kids can grow up, it's surprising how much, and and, and quite frankly, it's a little bit frightening to me what people are willing to give up, Mm -hmm. you know, in the name of security and safety. and, And I guess just hoping that, 
you know, that flag or whatever the modern day equivalent of flag is, doesn't turn his sights on you. Right. Um, like you think about people in Russia, you know, who are, you know, they're probably getting some dribs and drabs of information about how the war is going in Ukraine. I mean, it's probably well known in Russia that the war is not going particularly well. Right. That, you know, Russian soldiers are taking a beating. Of course, they're killing tons and tons of Ukrainian civilians and soldiers. A and who knows how it's going to end, end up? Will, you know, Putin survive this? Who knows? But, you know, you're talking about a big country of, I don't know how, how big the population of Russia is. I'm guessing it's 65, maybe 80 million people. You know, for the most part, if, if their lives are going pretty smoothly, they know to keep their mouth shut, not talk bad about the, the administration. You know, they can live their lives in relative peace. And, and it's almost like that, that reminds me of, you know, what the people in, in New Vegas in the stand were willing to put up with because, you know, they do their job, they follow the rules, they're going to get three hots and a cot mm -hmm. and time to entertain themselves. And I think there are a few scenes that are set in Vegas where when Flag's not around, you know, there's whispers between the characters that they know they're living in a, in a shitty environment, but it's just enough that there's enough safety and security that they're willing to put up with it. And, and, I, and I, you do see that reflected, I think, around the world, not just in the United States, but I think around the world, you see a lot of that. It's hard to assign a value judgment to that, like or a moral judgment to that, because right. every human being's first natural tendency is survival. And whether you get to do that in a slightly freer environment or not is often not your choice. It's usually a matter mm. of where you're born. And right. so then of course you learn to function in whatever system you come into. And then, you know, that analogy that's often used of the the frog in the pot of water where the temperature is slowly being turned up and, mm. you know, mm. and then how it doesn't notice until it's boiling. That analogy has been used so much to demonstrate how much humans are willing to tolerate before it's too late. And it definitely shows here. It has shown here in the U.S. Uh, it, those changes are so minute. And, you know, in many cases, it feels like we're approaching that boiling point. Meanwhile, the free zone, they're trying to just get the power turned on. They're trying to, right. you know, they're dealing with a whole other set of problems and they have their own corruption setting in. And mm. I, one thing I really love as kind of an aside that I don't see and maybe you've played with this too in some of your books. I I don't know, but I love how King focuses so much on infrastructure in this story, like the way he talks about the power plants and what's yeah. going on in them is something I don't even think they've covered in The Walking Dead, like the danger of a power plant that has not been supervised um, because all the people are dead and how things can run out of control three mile Island in that time, it was really in the zeitgeist. Like what happens to a power plant when it's no longer being manned? And so I love how he dug into that whole side of it. There was a book called the knowledge. It's a nonfiction uh, book that I actually had already written the immune by then, but it's this, uh, what's, I can't remember his name, the author's name, but it's sort of like a guide on how to address, you know, certain um, things you'll need to address to survive a really big cataclysm if you're lucky enough to survive it or unlucky enough, I guess, if you're not, <laughs> no one's jonesing to be the last 1% on earth. <laughs> but one of the things he talks about, and one of the big problems that we would face if there was a cataclysm like the one in the stand for the people that, were, that, that survived, whether it's 1%, 10%, whatever, is the thing that you're talking about is that we live in a, in a world that is so 
complicated and, and complex that it would be very difficult to have the people with the know-how to run power plants or to make medicines because everybody's job is so, so specialized that if the, the guy that, or the woman that's in charge of maintaining the, the Johnson rod at the power plant is dead and nobody else knows how to do it. And that's just one piece of probably a million different pieces that you need to run something like a power plant mm-hmm. or, you know, um, a hydroelectric dam or whatever yeah. um, that we rely on now. It is definitely um, frightening to think, and you did see this, and I don't even want to, I can't even imagine the trouble we'd be in right now if the vaccine had not proven to be so effective. Right. Um, I mean, you know, would we have been seeing some level of societal collapse? Poss- I, I don't know. I, I don't know where we'd be if the vaccine had not come through the way it did. Um, because especially if the virus had continued to mutate, well, I mean, it has continued to mutate, you know, we still lost a million people. There's still 20 million worldwide dead. A very, very significant chunk. And that right there, I love that you mentioned that about the specialization, the the sort of granular aspect of, of people's jobs, because, you know, you trying to explain to people, for instance, I work in, in grocery, you know, as my day job. And, and, you know, I hear people all the time, like, uh, why isn't this product available? And then to tell them something like, well, they couldn't get the cans to put the product in. Right. Well, why couldn't they get the cans? Well, the people who make the aluminum or the people who do this, or why can't I get this particular uh, cut of meat or vegetable? Well, see, they can't get the blades at the processing plants into the country because covid and you know there's a lineup boats at the ports and you know there's all these things and it's like that one little piece that makes it possible for you to get a can of corn in your hands or a can of pop or or those baby carrots that you love so much all of that is made possible by a million tiny little things coming together to make it happen. And once you lose a link in that chain, yeah, it's going to cause a problem. It's going to cause a log jam. And that's happening with every single product that we depend on right now. Um, and that's going to take years to sort out. I, I mean, I, I, I hope that, that we figure out a way that, you know, that we just don't build back to what we had before, right. that we build back some system that is able to absorb some, you know, traumas from time to time because you know it was really i mean everybody was like what the f you know yeah well when you realize that people use the 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 terminology uh the just in case versus the just in time uh economy where we were in doing the just in time thing because we could produce and ship on demand and then once that was discovered to be a problem we realized we don't have inventories of anything really put put away for emergencies. That's just not how our economy flows, which is really fascinating considering in America right now, the top, one of the top growing industries is warehouse space for distribution Mm -hmm. centers. And, and so when you're, when you have that knowledge, then it's like, well, we could be using some of that to maybe put away some stuff because this is not going to get better quite yet. So, you know, it's all those little things. And King just 
back in 1978 when he wrote this thing and in 1990 when he revised it 1990 was mm-hmm. i mean people our age like to think 1990 was only 10 years ago but you know it wasn't <laughs> it's, it's not quiet it was over 30 years ago so even then he's thinking you know i don't i, I don't approve of that at all that not. it was 30 years ago <laughs> I, I, I can't i'm just, yeah you're right yeah. let's shut this thing down um <laughs> but even then he was thinking about it which shows to me how good he is at considering every possible angle. I feel like if we read the stand today or anybody picking up this book today, they would see and probably relate to and feel a lot of parallels to what we've been dealing with, even though Captain Trips itself is of course way deadlier. I do I, I do like to joke though that at least Captain Trips was over in a month. I mean, <laughs> we're like in year we're in year three of this thing. <laughs> I know. Something, you know, and that leads me to think too that in many key ways we're we're on three three years of this so far, and in some ways it the vaccine has definitely done its job, but in other ways it feels like COVID kind of has won in the cultural sense because it's like those of us who were doing the right thing and you know wearing our masks and avoiding gatherings mm-hmm. and doing all that we just I, I don't want to speak for you, but for me personally I really started to feel beat down because I knew way back in my Pepsi days when I was seeing the slow change of everything and how dark it was getting, even as the whole, like, we're coming together, we're, we're sticking together and you know, whatever. And it felt kind of like we were all on the same page here. I knew we were on borrowed time. I Mm -hmm. knew that arms demonstration in front of the Michigan state house was gonna happen like I just I was waiting for it when it finally happened uh I felt like oh yeah here it is here we go because it's just it just felt very inevitable to me and everything before that was like this eerie quiet before the storm and I I think this kind of ties into one of the things that you and I had also talked about before was um part of writing this kind of fiction is it's almost like a warning you know when when King wrote it I mean, one of his big themes that he was really getting after was the prevalence of violence in our world. And it was a virus that had been built as a weapon that ultimately came back and bit us. It was our own weapon in the story. It's a, it's a U.S. built um, bioweapon that we lost control of and, you know, it basically destroyed civilization. And then the use of the bomb, you know, in the scene you're talking about that wipes out part of the, part, a number of the characters... Um, again, you know, turning to violence and, you, you know, we talked about how this kind of fiction is often used as a warning, what can happen if you're not careful. Yes. Um, and, you know, obviously at the time of King, especially in the time when he wrote the book, you know, nuclear war was a very, you know, that was something that, and I'm not sure exactly, I'm, I'm 40, I'll be 49 this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, nuclear war was something we thought about a lot. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the home of the biggest naval base in the world. And, you know, I knew where the bomb shelters were, the ones that were marked with the radiation symbol, even though it was made very clear to us as kids, if there's a nuclear war, don't even bother going to the shelter. Norfolk is like target number two on the list. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. My husband uh, served in the Navy there. And and yeah, he could definitely say similarly. You know, this kind of fiction is supposed to be a warning to, to people, although the story is very entertaining and you sort of picture yourself, well, how would you survive? Could you know what canned goods to eat, which ones to stay away from, who to team up with. Um, could you could you handle the, the psychological impact of being one out of 100 who survives? 
But I almost feel, and, and I see this in a lot of other post-apocalyptic fiction, it's almost like some of the authors and, you know, everybody can write their own story and I, and I don't judge that, but it, it, sometimes it can feel like it's almost fetishized that this sort of outcome is what we want to happen. Right. And, and, I, and, and I, I find that really troubling. You know, there, I understand that there are prepper communities and this is a thing that a, a part of our population thinks about and plans for, but it's almost like it's something that they want to happen. So they can be like, see, we told you this was going to happen. And now I've got my, you know, 600 tons of Chef Boyardee <laughs> and I'm ready to, to withstand it. I have all these um, MREs, man. I've been stuck yeah, in yeah, them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I don't want people to look at a post-apocalyptic future as some sort of like way out of the life that they're in, you know, yeah. we all, we all get, but so much time on this earth and planning for the worst possible outcome as the goal almost is, is really, is really scary to me. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, when, when the solution could often be as simple as how about uh, voting or participating in your democracy a little bit, like, you know, as we watch, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. They talk about, you know, all these problems with the government and everything, and then they just refuse to participate in it. And then it gets worse and they, they're breaking the thing that they more that the thing that they say is broken. And it just is this ugly cycle. And you're right. And it is like this way of saying like, okay, I'm this prepper and, you know, these, these uh, evil left wingers are coming to destroy America and, you know, or whatever element. And they're trying to tell this kind of sloppy political allegory, whereas King keeps his stuff very politically neutral. Like, I don't recall him mentioning if the government in charge was a Democrat or Republican controlled government. I mean, there's none of that in it. And I don't recall it even being mentioned in other examples of like apocalyptic fiction, like uh, The Walking Dead. That's another one where uh, shit happened. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you know, we're humans that got to come together and deal with it. But I do see people that almost seem to be praying for society's collapse on the one hand. And then on the other hand, these are the same people that are pissed that they can't get some niche product that uh, was withheld somewhere. Yeah, how dare you not have three types of organic coconut milk? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's like, you know, the system that you rail against, you depend on it so badly. And how do you think you got all the parts to build your little prepper shelter? And then, you know, I have no problem with, you know, being prepared and, you know, you know, making sure that in the event of a hurricane or tornado or, you know, whatever natural disaster might befall you, you know, even thinking ahead, you know, now that we live in a time where we're melting the permafrost and God knows what viruses and bacteria are buried in the permafrost, you know, make a plan for, you know, if you need, if let's say there's another pandemic, God, I hope not, but you never know. And, you know, if you needed to stay home for a few weeks and you couldn't leave your house because it was, you know, too dangerous or whatever, I, I get all that. But the, the, the fetishization, again, I'm stumbling over that word, of, of an end time where, you know, we can run around with guns and shoot people, I find to be, be troubling. One of my favorite parts, that one of the favorite scenes I wrote in, in my book was one of the survivors that the, the main characters find is this 14-year-old boy. Um, he's living with his single mom and, you know, she dies of the, dies in the pandemic and he's left by himself. And then he confesses later to one of the main characters, you know, because, you know, he had kind of a rough childhood and he's like, he's like, I, he's like, I kind of thought an apocalypse would be cool. And, and he's like, I thought it'd be neat to be a survivor. And he's like, why did I think that? He's like, it sucks. You know, 
We don't know when our next meal's coming from. We don't know if we have clean water. Why does anyone think the apocalypse would be cool? So I thought that was uh, a fun little scene to write. It's gotten ground into our psyche enough collectively that we assume it's inevitable. And, and I feel like that is, you know, does contribute to it. So when we are in an actual crisis, it, it contributes to a sense of inertia and fatalism that I think people have that, well, you know, I mentioned this the other day on, um, on one of my posts on Facebook, because I was just talking, I was just kind of, you know, ranting about work sometimes as I do. And, you know, a friend of mine who works at the at a casino in North Carolina, he was just talking about how, you know, since the pandemic, people have gotten even more rude, even more difficult to work with. It's his job has become a living hell. He's mm. just seeing aspects of human, which you don't often see the best side of humanity working in a casino. Um, right. and, but it's just gotten many degrees worse than that. And I, and I said, yeah, people have gotten very rude. And, and I think that being cut off socially has stunted some of that politeness but then on the flip side of that in my job in addition to dealing with the entitled angry people are the defeated people i'll mention the coconut milk as an example because that's actually been a product that's been very hard to get right now um and you know i see you don't have the coconut milk today and then i'll say yeah, we're out of stock, but do you want me to look up and see when our next shipment's coming in? I could give you some information. And some of these people are like, no, that's okay. If you don't have it, you don't have it. And then they just trudge off like droopy dog, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, you know, it would take me five minutes. Right. And we're going to get more. We're going to get more. I could tell you when, and then you can know when to come back. You can sort of just look forward to it. And they just are beaten down. And that's almost as disturbing as the rude people, because that tells me that you've been beat down and you're giving up. And that is something we do not want to see. And that creates like a, you know, that cyclical self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, the, I love that King like creates this so many layers to the story of so many different things. It seems very binary on the surface, like good versus evil. I mean, the very cover of that with the two battling it out, the sort of light creature and the dark creature. And it seems very binary, but then when you read it, you see so many, so many complications and contradictions and other things because human beings are that way. And and, and it shows that, that King puts a lot of attempt to understanding every angle of humanity, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I want to know what you think. I mean, do you think that anything in the stand, is there something there that gives you hope about where we are? You know, like, would you read the stand and feel more hopeful today? Or would you feel kind of like, oh yeah, that's it. That's where we are now. (laughs) I feel like he tried to give some hope at the time. I just wonder if that translates today the same way, given what we're currently living in. Oh boy. Hmm. (laughs) That's a a tough one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you look at the way that, at the way Vegas sort of unraveled at the end, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it became clear that Flag did not really have as tight a grip on his community as probably he believed he did. Yes. And whenever you look at regimes in history, the ones that eventually come down and they all come down, it's because the rot is at its core. Mm-hmm. Whether we, you know, you and I and our society today is living in a period where we're going into a darker phase. That, that might be the case right now. Ultimately, it will end and then we'll come out of it again because that just seems to be the cycle of history. Yes. 
um, if we can avoid nuking ourselves into, you know, another dimension. Yes. And if we can avoid, you know, the worst effects of climate change, if we can avoid another pandemic, um, or at least learn, you know, take the tools that we picked up from this one to maybe nip an- another one in the bud. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine that there'd be another virus as contagious as the Omicron variant of the of COVID, um, which I think is now pushing contagiousness of measles, which is the most contagious virus of all time. Incredible. If I, if I understand correctly, I may not be in that ballpark yet. Then I think, you know, I think there's always reason to hope because, you know, these things come and go. And because totalitarianism and the type of society that flag was building is, you know, built on a lot of lies, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't make society perfect the way that certain elements of our society in America and around the world think society can be, the world is not going to be catered to the white heterosexual Christian man. It's just not the way it works. Maybe that's the way a lot of them want it to be, but it's not going to be that way. So if you continue to build on a lie like that, everything's going to come crashing down. And then hopefully out of that, progress can be made. I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about you know, pushing that rock up the hill, you know, over time, you know, things slowly have gotten better in this country for, you know, minorities and people who are oppressed, um, LGBT people and minority. I mean, they're not perfect by, by no means, but, you know, I, I'd like to think that it's better than it was maybe 30 years ago, 50 years ago, I hope. Thanks mostly in part to just simple awareness, right? That we can talk about that or like the plight of disabled people through this pandemic, which has been enormous and you know still is and that's not changing anytime soon and in many ways i think we're kind of leaving them behind as we move on you know and you know so it's like but we can talk about that we have this discussion you and i sitting here uh i know we live some miles apart i mean i'm here in ohio you are what state are you in David, in Virginia. You're in Virginia. Here we are talking on our computers in real time, like like it's the freaking Jetsons or something. I know, uh, right? It's something I always dreamed of as a kid. And here we are doing that. And we can get on Facebook. We can get on Twitter. We, you know, these, these mechanisms that have a lot of downsides to them, mm. but also provide a platform for a lot of voices that have never been heard in so long. So when the right people are hearing those voices, at least it creates a communities and I guess that's kind of the beautiful thing that King demonstrates in this story is that beauty of the community and the unity. Yes, insidious elements can get in there and we have to tackle those and confront those and deal with those and tragedies happen and a lot of bad elements happen and we have to continue always to work and resolve those things. The work is never done. You know, at the end of the stand, Stu comes back from New Vegas. Franny gives birth to her baby. The baby catches the virus, is very sick. I mean, they have to encounter this. And then, of course, the baby gets better. And, you know, I think Franny gets pregnant again, if I'm not mistaken. Time passes. Yeah, because they've, they've moved to Maine. Yes, exactly. They leave, they, leave, they leave the free zone. Yeah, and they're trying to establish a whole new settlement up there of survivors, which just shows life goes on. And also you have to keep working. It's not enough to say, I showed up, 
say in 2020 to vote, uh, and I'm done. And, you know, it is like, no, you have to keep working. You have to keep pushing that rock up that hill. This isn't like, oh, I just showed up for a minute and just dinked it with my finger and then I can walk away. It is like, no, sorry, we're all in this together and you got to keep working. And that's a hard message to sell to a lot of folks, but that's. I'm I'm actually going to look at the very end of the stand to see what because Stu, I think, has the last line in the book. Well, she because they're talking about the, any lessons they might have learned from you know going through Captain Trips, and um, this is this is Stu from Stu's perspective, looking down at Peter, who's their son. He thought maybe if we tell him what happened, he'll tell his own children, warn them, dear children, the toys are death, they're flash burns and radiation sickness and black choking plague. These toys are dangerous. The devil in men's brains guided the hands of God. When they were made, don't play with these toys, dear children, please not ever, not ever again. Please, please learn the lesson. Let this empty world be your copybook. And then he asks Franny, do you think people ever learn anything? Which I think is sort of the question that we're talking about. And she ends it with, I don't know. So I guess it's maybe a little bit maybe not quite as hopeful as I remember. I feel like though it does, it's, it's, it's that classic King ambiguity (laughs) of the ending there where it leaves you with something to think on because for sure, because he's not, while that bit of dialogue you delivered from Sue, some could say, Oh, that sounds a little preachy, but then she counters that with that ambiguity of like, yeah, those, you know, I don't know that they'll ever learn. And, and you're right. It's like, you have the ideals, you have the principles, we have these minds that are capable of coming up with these utopian and almost utopian or or sort of just elevated concepts of how we should treat people. And when we talk about the wealth that's being stolen from the middle class and all this stuff. And, and then at the end of the day, it's like, well, we know this is happening, but what are we going to, are we going to do anything about it? Are we going to fix it? And it really does like those three words. I don't know. We just continue to live. We continue to survive and we continue to continue to work in the circles that we have. And I mean, I, I do take, I do take some solace. I mean, you know, we were, were faced with this virus that, you know, that no human being had ever had to battle, you know, their immune system had never seen it before. And within weeks, you know, they had mapped out the entire genome within mm-hmm. 12 weeks. They had a you know, a prototype vaccine ready to test. And that was China sharing that information with the rest of us. Wasn't it the scientists who kind of broke protocol by doing that? I'm not, I'm not sure. No, you're right. They did break the protocol. And I feel like that's the human element at play. Like that regardless of what their governments say, I think there is that element of what's right is right. Oh, for sure. And we're going to break the rules here. And that's something we kind of want to see a little more of. Uh, And in that instance, that's the thing that saved, I mean, countless millions of lives. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I'm seeing that they're using this uh, mRNA technology to derive cures for pancreatic cancer. Yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, it's just, you know, the the cancer that is probably the biggest death sentence out there. Um, So, so a lot to be derived about that and a lot to think about. And I think if anything just shows the, how this story endures and why it's important to know it and still read it. I think this, this book should still be widely read. I'm going to wrap things up here. I know. Cause we've had such a good discussion. Yeah. This has been awesome. And I, I hope people will, if you haven't read the stand in a long time, maybe pick it back up again and see what you can learn from it. And 
I, I know there are going to be so many people that are going to say, we didn't make a M-O-O-N reference. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't talk about, I, didn't, I forgot to wear my t-shirt that says, baby, can you dig your man on it? I do have oh, that yeah. shirt. I have, there's so many cultural things with the stand that endure. And, and I'd love to hear from anybody listening about your favorite parts of the story and what stands out to you. But David, you know, I want to turn it back to you, man. I want you to tell people where they can find your books and interact with you on social media. And do you have anything new coming down the pipeline? It's funny. I actually am going to take a little break from post-apocalyptic fiction mm-hmm. um, because quite frankly, given where we are now, it's really hard. You know, I write as an escape and having sat down to write more post-apocalyptic fiction, I had actually started in a spinoff series uh, for the immune and it was going to be set back in the early days. And I, I just, honestly, I couldn't do it. It was just too dark. Um, so I kind of want to get back a little bit to writing some more thriller type stories. You can follow me on Facebook if you'd like to. David Kazzy author is my Facebook page or uh, davidkazzy.com is my website. Um, and I do encourage, if you have not read this gigantic book. It's about a um, three inch thick Yeah, it's, it's enormous. <laughs> or, or if you haven't read it in a while, uh, and I'm kind of, now that we've had this discussion, I'm kind of itching to read it again, Same. especially now that we've, now that we've been through COVID, you know, some of the things that, that we saw and thought and, and felt, especially in those early days when nobody knew what the hell was going on. Yeah. Um, I, I think might, we might look at it in a new way um, of what these characters went through in the story. And, you know, maybe we'll find that it wasn't realistic the way they they went through it. I think it will be. Yeah, I agree. And and I, I actually do plan to revisit this book now that I'm nearing the end of this season and I'm going to take a little break before we start season three. And in that break, I fully intend to, uh, most of my reading these days is done through audiobook because that allows me to sort of clean and do chores and oh that was one good thing about the pandemic i started listening to audiobooks i had not really i had not been an audiobook fan before that but this that changed yeah it. doing a lot of uh work like when i worked for pepsi i i uh, guess i did so much driving and then i was in the stores alone not having to interact with customers so i'd pop an earbud in and so podcasts and audiobooks have become you know my my daily bread and so um I, I imagine that the audiobook for the uncut version of the stand is going to be probably about 50 hours long, but um, yeah, I think that's, ex- I think that's exactly right. I looked at it the other day and I think it's like 52, maybe 51 or 52 hours. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a bit of a haul. Thank you again for coming on David. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And if uh, anybody out here is likes what they're hearing, please check out David's books. Also uh, hop on to Apple, give me a review or reach out to me at DD Dark time on Twitter, Instagram, or Gmail. If you have any questions, comments, hate mail, love mail, whatever, suggestions for future episodes, uh, you name it. So in the meantime, I'll be back next week with another episode and have a good night. Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs.